0: We were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James, and all the elders were present. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord, and said unto him, Thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. Do therefore this that we say to thee, We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou... Thyself also walkest orderly, and keepest the law. As touching the Gentiles which believe, we have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols, and from blood, and from strangled, and from fornication. Then Paul took the men, and the next day purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of the purification, until that an offering should be offered for every one of them." Chapter 21 opens with Paul and his company departing from Miletus en route to Jerusalem. And they have many stops along the way that Luke uh, narrates for us. He gives us uh, a few different scenes with some of the different churches in the different places where they stop. And throughout this final trip, Paul is warned through various prophecies about what will happen to him in Jerusalem. And the believers around Paul and even those finally that are even in his own company interpret those prophecies as divine guidance against Paul going to Jerusalem. And they try to persuade him not to go. Now it does become clear um, through the book of Acts that divine guidance is actually leading Paul to Jerusalem and he will not be moved from that. Now by verse 17, Paul has made it to Jerusalem. And this begins the last major section of the book of Acts. Paul will quickly be arrested in Jerusalem and he will be a prisoner throughout the rest of this book. And the rest of this book is mainly devoted to um, trial scenes and the journey to Rome. Paul meets in this section we're looking at this morning, he meets with... The elders from the church in Jerusalem, and they raise a concern with Paul concerning the Jews and their keeping of the customs. Now, this particular issue with the Jews features throughout the rest of the book of Acts, and it's actually highlighted when you pay attention to Paul's defense speeches, and there's a series of those as we come to the end of this book. But this final section of the book shows that Despite the great number of Jews who believed, many more did not. And in fact, the nation has rejected the witness that Jesus sent to them that he commissioned before his ascension right at the very beginning of this book. So as we look at this, verses 17 to 26, um, Paul's meeting with the elders, we are going to just... Look at this section straight through, beginning with verse number one. I mean, verse number 17. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So Luke has noted now their arrival in Jerusalem, which for quite some time now, Paul has been aiming toward getting to Jerusalem. And he has finally arrived there. Now, the reference he makes that the brethren received us gladly, the brothers in Jerusalem, and we have seen this. Um, throughout the book of Acts, and Luke has been very consistent in this usage, when you have a plural reference to believers, disciples, brothers um, in a particular location, that this is typically a reference to the church that is in that place. And so this here is a reference to um, the church that is in Jerusalem, and it likely indicates the fact that they went to a meeting or to an assembly um, of the church Now the adverb that is used here for the word gladly, it's a word that indicates great joy and great pleasure. He's describing the church at Jerusalem as being overjoyed to receive Paul and this whole company. Now Luke does not mention the offering that Paul was bringing to the church at Jerusalem But uh, certainly that offering would have provided one of the reasons that they would have had for great haste. It doesn't seem that they wasted any time. They came to Jerusalem and they met with the church there, with the brothers there. And it was probably given to the elders the next day uh, as we begin reading in verse number 18. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. So the day following this arrival in Jerusalem that he has written of, Paul and company went to meet the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Luke names James, and it seems that he was the leading elder of the church there in Jerusalem, um, what we might refer to uh, in today's terms as a senior pastor um, of the church there in Jerusalem, and that is James, um, the brother of um, Jesus and not, the, not James, the son of Zebedee. Luke notes also that all of the elders were present. Now, we do not know the exact number of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, it does seem that when we have references to the elders of the church at Jerusalem that we see them in distinction from the apostles or from any uh, apostles that were there. We've noticed this development as we have gone throughout the book of Acts, that, it, that the leadership of the church in Jerusalem began with the apostles and has um, has sort of transformed or transferred um, unto elders. And we know that as the gospel has spread out and other churches have been Planted that there were elders that were appointed and ordained um, in those churches as well. So they met with James and with all of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. Verse 19. And when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So Paul greeted the elders. And he gave a report of his mission work. And again we see this as being a pattern throughout the Book of Acts when Paul would meet with other churches that he would relay to them the things that God had done um, through his ministry and that of him and his companions. Now Luke uses this word, it's translated here particularly. It's a word that indicates a detailed report. In other words, it's a word that indicates a thorough report, that Paul gave a thorough report, a detailed report to the elders of the church in Jerusalem of all of the things that had taken place throughout his ministry. And I think if you go back and add up, it had been a few years, maybe uh, at least five, since he had um, been in Jerusalem at this point. So this detailed report obviously would include his preaching to the Jews, his preaching to the Gentiles... The planting of churches, the um, appointing, ordaining of elders, the persecution and the opposition that he faced in all of these various places. So this is something that would have taken a long time. Obviously, Luke is not telling us directly the words that Paul spoke to them. He's giving us a summary as he often does. So this would have no doubt been a very long meeting as Paul was relating all, of these, very, Paul was relating all these various things to them. Notice also what Luke says here. That when he had saluted them, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So Luke is emphasizing to us, and no doubt Paul emphasized this in his report as well. He was emphasizing the work that God had done. Now, we find this as being a a, um, consistent feature of his presentations. If you look back in chapter 14 and verse 27 and chapter 15, verse 4, and also again in verse 12, we find those instances where Paul is giving a report of the things that have been done and how that he is careful to emphasize that it is the work that God has done among them. God has done through their ministry or God has done in those particular places. And you notice that he speaks of among the Gentiles. Now, among the Gentiles, as we will see used a little bit later in this very passage, is a a figure of speech ultimately that most likely refers to the lands outside of Israel. In other words, he's not saying that he merely went and only preached to Gentiles, and we know that that's not the case. And the fact that he gave them a detailed report, we know that he would have included um, his work among the Jews as well and what God has done within. But this among the Gentiles is referring to the lands outside of Israel because they are predominantly Gentile lands. So he is explaining uh, and and telling them what God has done, not just among Gentiles, but also among Jews in the lands of the Gentiles. Verse number 20. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, Now seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So the immediate response was the elders praising God for what they heard. So Luke indicates how they were overjoyed to receive Paul and his company. Now that they have heard a, a detailed accounting of the work that God has been doing um, through Paul's ministry, they praise God for what has been done. We don't see anything here. Except we don't see, in other words, we don't see any sort of a jealousy, we don't see any sort of an envy, we don't see anything like that. We see a rejoicing in what God has done. They knew that Paul was a chosen instrument. We know that we could go back long before, prior to this time, when Paul talks about how he had visited them and how he explained the gospel that they preached and how that the elders of the church in Jerusalem had extended the right hand of fellowship, he said to them, and said that they, they saw that he was indeed uh, a, an apostle to the Gentiles, an apostle to the uncircumcised. And now they're praising God for what God has done through Paul and through his Companions. Now Luke does not identify the primary speaker. We could probably assume it to be James. It's a safe assumption as he is named in the beginning of the account. But we're not told who the primary speaker was. But uh, but the way that it is put as if they were speaking to him. In other words, he's indicating that the elders were in agreement in what they are saying to Paul. And they began speaking to him in this, um, this verse. He says, Thou seest, brother... How many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. So I don't assume that this is all that was said to Paul, or that this is all of the conversation. But again, Luke has summarized a meeting, and he has highlighted some particular aspect of that meeting. And what he has highlighted here has been the words that the elders spoke to Paul concerning the other Jews. That means it's significant. Obviously, this also sets up the the theme that runs throughout the rest of the book. And that is the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. The questions over the keeping of the law and such. Now, they begin by saying that many thousands of Jews... Have believed. Now, the word that's used here in the Greek is a word that can indicate literally the number 10,000, but it's also a word that can be used to, to just speak more generally as a large number, typically numbering in the thousands. In some cases, the word can be used to simply indicate a number that can't be numbered, a number that can't be counted, a number beyond reckoning. Here, likely, thousands is a a very good indication of what is meant um, by the phrase. And we know that we can come to that conclusion simply by going through the book of Acts and adding up what we know um, from what we see there. But it certainly was a very large number and could have been uh, many thousands, I believe, that he's speaking of particularly there in Judea. Now, they're referring to the Jews which believe and are zealous for the law. These are Jews who are believers. They have professed faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and Savior of the world. These are they who have been baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, making that public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. But he says that also they are zealous of the law. Now, this means the law and customs that have come from Moses and many of the traditions from the fathers as well. Now, just as a side note here, these believing Jews who are zealous of the law. If you read Romans chapter 14, you will find there that Paul describes those Jews who are zealous for the law as having weak consciences. That's the way that Paul refers to them in Romans chapter number 14. And so these are those sorts of Jews. These are weak brethren in the church in Jerusalem as well as in other churches in and around Judea. Verse number 21. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. When it says they're informed of thee, this phrase indicates that they've heard rumors of Paul. They've heard stories about what Paul is preaching, particularly to the Jews who are scattered throughout the Gentile lands. They indicate that there are three... Particular aspects of Paul's preaching that they have heard about and are concerned about. Number one, that Jews are to forsake the law of Moses. And that's the word that's used from which we get our English word apostasy. That Paul was preaching and teaching them to apostatize from Moses. That that does mean forsake. It means to turn from completely. Secondly, that Jews are not to circumcise their children. And thirdly, that Jews are not to keep the customs. This refers to things such as the temple rites, such as the feasts, such as the dietary laws, and what have you. Now, this is, I hesitate to say an accusation, but certainly in the mouth of some it is an accusation against Paul. Probably in the mouths of others it is a concern about Paul and and, and exactly what it is that Paul is preaching and teaching. Now I am unaware of any specific example in Scripture where Paul commands Jews to do those three things. I, I, I I can't think of a place, I haven't found a place where Paul has told them specifically to do these three things. But Paul has written letters prior to this time. We've talked about some as we've been going through uh, our study of the Bible in, um, on our Wednesday night Bible studies. We know that Paul has written some letters prior to this time, including the letter to Romans, the letter of 1 Corinthians, and the letter to Galatians. And in those letters, he has written such things as that Jews and Gentiles, for that matter, are no longer under the law. That appears in places like Romans chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, and Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, and chapter 4, verse 5, and um, first part of chapter 5 as well. He has also written in these letters that circumcision and uncircumcision are both nothing in terms of salvation and true righteousness before God circumcision nor uncircumcision doesn't avail anything. First Corinthians chapter 7 verse 19, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15. Paul has also certainly taught that they are to abandon the law as any means of hope or justification. In fact if you look at Galatians chapter 5 and verses 1 to 6 you'll see that Paul speaks in very strong terms. That if they have placed any hope, any confidence in circumcision, then Paul says plainly, Christ will avail you nothing. If you've put any trust in that, if you've put any confidence in that for righteousness, then Paul says, You are a debtor to keep the whole law, and Christ has availed you nothing. So Paul has made statements like that. So we certainly could see where these sort of accusations could arise from. Paul had come to see that those customs were not necessary. And you can look at places like 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, you you can see what Paul taught concerning that. He speaks there in 1 Corinthians 9... If you notice how that Paul frames that whole conversation, he speaks in terms of the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, Verses 19 to 23, we were looking at them this morning in in Sunday school, but these are verses in particular that speak when Paul says things like to the Jew, I became as a Jew to those that are without law. In other words, the Gentiles, I became as as without law and, and so on. But he comes on down and says, This I do for the gospel's sake, that he might be made partakers with them. So he speaks in terms of the furtherance of the gospel. So Paul has said that he was willing to live as a Jew. He was willing to observe the customs and and the feasts and, and what have you, in order to win the Jews, in order to preach the gospel to them, in order to show them... Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all these things that the law pointed to. And many of these things that they have practiced from their youth up. He was willing to do that. Paul said he was also willing to live as a Gentile. Which showed that he was free from the law of Moses. Because if he were not free from the law of Moses, he simply could not live as a Gentile to the Gentiles. In order to preach the gospel to them. Now, when we consider passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, especially, I do believe we can draw out from those places the following conclusions concerning what Paul preached in this matter of which he's being called into question. The believing Jews. I believe that this is what Paul preached. The believing Jews had a right or they had a liberty to keep the customs of the Jews. They had a freedom to do so. And obviously the other side of that coin would be they had a freedom not to do so. But they had a freedom to do so. Number one, to preserve their cultural heritage. These customs and rites were much a part of their identity as Jewish people. It was a a part of their life. It was not merely something that they took part in part of the time or, or simply could do, and sometimes they did, and sometimes they didn't do. This truly was a part of their cultural heritage and upbringing as Jewish people. And he would say, I believe that The Jews had a right, those who had come to faith in Christ, they had a right, they had a freedom to observe those things in order to preserve their cultural heritage. And secondly, they had a right to do that in order to avoid unnecessary offense, to preach the gospel to the Jews, to maintain a witness to them. Also, when we consider the passage in Galatians chapter 2. Let's just turn over there for a moment. We'll look at a couple of verses. In Galatians chapter number 2. We can see a case where I believe Paul would say circumcision needs to be abandoned. Galatians chapter 2. He begins, When fourteen years after I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me also, and I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which were of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run in vain. But neither Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And that because of false brethren, unawares, brought in, who came in privily to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage." To, to whom we gave place by subjection, no not for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Paul completely refused to have Titus, who was a Gentile, circumcised. Because of the insistence and pressure of these here he calls false brethren. We usually refer to them as Judaizers. And those who were teaching that circumcision and keeping the law of Moses was necessary in order to salvation. So when it came to the truth of the gospel and salvation and true righteousness before God. I believe that Paul preached and taught that that should be abandoned if In fact, it was in any way hindering or obscuring or confusing the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he was pressured to have Titus circumcised. But he would not do it. So though believing Jews, and I believe this is sort of the the conclusion again, we're drawing out of other places of what Paul taught in relation to these accusations I believe that Paul taught that believing Jews were free to keep the customs. But I believe he also taught that if those customs interfered with or hindered the gospel. Or hindered people from coming to faith in Jesus Christ. I believe he would have said abandon it. Leave it. Leave it behind. Because Paul knew those things weren't necessary. That Christ had fulfilled those things. And those things did not make a man righteous or unrighteous before God. Paul knew that anything other than wholesale law keeping was offensive to some. And that it would bring him to trouble. In other words, this is I believe that is the message that Paul preached. But Paul also knew that wasn't acceptable to those who were truly zealous for the keeping of the law. For those who really didn't understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. He knew that this would bring him to trouble. And in fact, when he wrote his letter to the Romans... And he was thinking about his trip to Jerusalem. He wrote this in Romans chapter 15, verses 31 to 32, asking for, for prayer that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints, that I may come unto you with joy by the will of God, and may with you be refreshed. So you see, after he went to Jerusalem, his next point was to go to Rome. That was Paul's plan. Now he did, and in fact, he did do that. Just not quite the way he probably would have liked to have done that. But he did do that. And he's asking here for prayer because he knows he's going to Judea. And he refers to these unbelieving Jews who are there. And he knows that they will not be satisfied with what Paul preaches and the way that he lives. So at least we can say that these accusations or these rumors against Paul were not entirely accurate. Let's go back to chapter 21 of Acts. We'll go back to verse 22 now. What is it, therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear that thou art come. So the elders put this problem to Paul, and they put it to him in light of the fact that Paul's arrival is going to be known. Paul is not going to be able to come to Jerusalem and, and keep that thing hidden. That's, it's going to be known. And remember that when he went to to Jerusalem for Pentecost, that was the reason why he did not stop at Ephesus but sailed around. He he went to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and that meant that Jews from all over the world were going to be in Jerusalem. No doubt many of those same Jews who had, had persecuted him in various cities throughout the Roman Empire. Paul had faced opposition from those Jews, and it was the potential for a dangerous situation for Paul. Now it's unclear what the elders of Jerusalem may know about the prophecies of Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. But they're urging him here that something must be done. Verse 23. Do therefore this that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Now first of all they're not commanding Paul. They don't have the authority to make Paul do this or that. They are giving him counsel and they're urging him to see the wisdom of it. They strongly suggest him to follow it. And they mention four Jewish believers. These would be four Jewish believers in the church of Jerusalem. And these four have taken a vow. Most likely a Nazarite vow, which was a vow of devotion or consecration to God. And remember that Paul himself had taken a vow in Corinth before leaving. You read that back in chapter 18 and verse 18. Verse 24. Them take and purify thyself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. So they suggest that Paul go with the men to finish their vow. In order to do that, Paul would have to go to the temple. In order to go into the temple, Paul would have to purify himself. And that's what they say here. Take these men, purify yourself with them. To purify himself meant observing uh, various purifying rites. Because he had come from Gentile lands. And he had contact with Gentiles. And before he could enter the temple, he would have to be purified according to the rites of the Jews. It was necessary for him to enter the temple. He says for, the, for him to be at charges with them. And what that means is for Paul to pay their expenses... In completing this vow, so the completion of their vows would have included sacrifices of some sort. These would have to be bought. Now, you you remember, in fact, how that um, when Jesus went into the temple, that he cleansed the temple of the money changers and and such. Um, They had a what had arisen was a market there for the temple, a market for animals to be offered for sacrifice, and it was really a, a very quite a corrupt system that had developed. Um, because remember, the priests had to approve, they had to inspect and improve the animal, approve the animal for sacrifice. And if a person had brought their own animal, well, they could find some grounds to disapprove of it. And if they had bought it from um, the market there, then they would approve of that particular animal. So again, you can see how it had grown into quite a corrupt system. And, I'm a, and I also understand historically that those animals bought at the market would be charged at an exorbitant rate. That you could get them cheaper elsewhere, but obviously those wouldn't be approved by the priest. These would come with a sort of a guarantee of that the priest is going to approve them. So these things would have to be bought If this this was in fact a Nazarite vow, according to Numbers chapter 6 and verses 14 and 15, it would have required a one-year-old male lamb, a one-year-old female lamb, and a ram. And of course, again, all of those without blemish, meaning all of those had to meet um, the, the priest's inspection. So for four men, three animals apiece could have been a very costly expense that Paul was being asked to pay for here. Now the completion of the Nazarite vow also required the shaving of the head at the entrance of the temple at Numbers chapter 6 and verse number 18. And the elders had hoped that by Paul doing this, now Paul wasn't taking a Nazarite vow on himself, which obviously there would not be time for that because it would require at least 30 days at a minimum. But Paul was not taking some sort of a vow. Paul was simply to purify himself so that he could enter the temple and he was to take charge of with them, he's to, to pay this expense, which is something that was considered actually um, as a charitable act. It was considered as a very good deed to pay the expense for someone, um, the the cost for their um, their offering or sacrifice at the temple. And so, if Paul would do this, the elders were hoping that that would that would quell the rumors and the suspicions around Paul. Verse number twenty five, as touching the Gentiles which believe. We have written and concluded that they observe no such thing, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So they referred to the letter written to the Gentile believers from the church in Jerusalem. This was after the council in Acts chapter number 15. So what the elders are, are referring to here and why they're referring to it is to clarify that they've not gone back from their position. And they are emphasizing... That they are not calling the Gentiles to do these things. Paul's doing of them was not in any way connected to salvation or righteousness before God. But his identity as a Jew and his relation to the Jewish community. Paul's companions were not to keep these things, um, but Paul himself. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple... To signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. So Paul followed the advice of the elders of the church in Jerusalem, purifying himself with them the next day. This indicates washing um, in one of the pools um, there around the temple. He entered the temple and to signify the accomplishment, what he's referring to is that he would have to go and notify the priest about the completion of these vows. So that meant that he would uh, communicate to the priest that when this would be accomplished, and we know from the next verse that it was seven days um, from the time that they went, um, when the vow would be complete, uh, as well as the description of the offerings that would be made, what they were going to bring, and, and all of that sort of thing. In other words, he would go ahead of time and indicate these things to the priest, that he's, and he's paying um, for the expenses and what have you. Now the phrase here that says, until then an offering should be offered for every one of them, Indicates the the four men that Paul is um, undertaking um, to sort of um, uh, sponsor them, if you will. Not that Paul himself was having any offerings on his his behalf, but he was performing the recommendation of the elders for them. So, this is an example of Paul setting aside a liberty. Going through this at the temple was not necessary. And Paul knew that he'd been freed from it. We know that Paul did not go through this as any means of being reconciled to God or of any means of improving his righteous standing before God. He observed these things as a Jew in order to preserve unity among the weaker brethren in the churches in Judea, as well as to maintain the gospel witness the unbelieving Jews in Judea. Paul did this, but again, he did not have his Gentile companions do it. I think there are two primary lessons for us in this particular incident. First of all, though it is briefly mentioned, the passage does start by acknowledging the work that God has done. That's back in verse 19. The work that God has done. Again, we must always remember that it is God's work. God is the one who gives the authority to do it. God is the one who gives the quote unquote rules to do it, if you will, what what the substance of it is, how that it's to be done. And God is also the one that gives the results for it. You remember how that Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said that I have planted and Apollos he has come behind me and he has watered but it is God that gives the increase and he says for that matter who is Paul and who is Apollos we are just workers together in the Lord's field but the increase is the Lord's the glory is God's we are always to remember that not to lose sight of that As we deliberate, as we strategize, as we sometimes get in situations like Paul and the church here in Jerusalem was in. And they had to deliberate about what could be done, what must be done, what, what should be done. We have to keep that in mind. It is God's work. It's not about our own convenience or our own promotion or our own comfort. But it is about glorifying God. In all that we do. Secondly, the action that was advised by the elders was for the benefit of the believing Jews in Judea. In other words, it was an attempt at unity. We know how much as we've gone through the book of Acts, as we've looked at a number of Paul's letters... We know how much of an issue of conflict that there was as Gentiles began to come in to these churches and in many cases, no doubt, outnumbered the Jews in some of these churches. So it is an attempt at unity. It is is something done in light of the weaker conscience brethren in these churches in Judea. Paul knew that many of the Jews were weak in conscience. And they could not abandon the customs without violating their consciences. And when we read Paul's writings, we know that that Paul would advise against um, causing one to violate their conscience. So he willingly laid aside his own liberty. He had the liberty not to observe this. He had the liberty not to do that. But he laid that liberty aside. The goal, however is for the maturing and the developing of the consciences of believers. Not for them forever remaining in a weak place of of misinformation or of hypersensitivity, but to grow and to mature, to become grounded and stable. I do believe that we learn from this. It is important to have unity. It is important to serve one another. It is important to be able to think of others even ahead of ourselves. But I do believe we also learned that unity is never to be sought at the cost of the gospel. Unity is never to be sought at the cost of the meaning of true saving faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, is exalted to the right hand of God, and is going to return. For the salvation and the reward of eternal life for all who believe in Him. And we are justified by faith from all the things that we could never be justified from by the law of Moses. No matter how scrupulously it's observed. So while yes, we should strive to maintain unity between believers and peace amongst ourselves. But we can never compromise, sacrifice, or obscure the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to have some sort of unity. If you remember the letter to the Ephesians, it's the truth in Christ that provides the real ground for our unity. Any any sort of unity outside of that is only going to be a false unity.